You know, people say you go to prison because you don't follow the rules. It's not true. You go to prison because you do follow the rules. Mm -hmm. The real rules that tell men how they're supposed to be. It's just some of us get criminalized for it and some of us become president for it. But same rules. Welcome to What's Underneath, the podcast that will inspire you to accept the skin you're in and step into your most whole, powerful self. I'm Lily Mandelbaum, and sitting next to me is my mom, Elisa Goodkind. And we are the creators of Style Like You. In our podcast, we bring you the extended interviews from our video series, The What's Underneath Project, in which diverse role models strip down to open up and claim the power of the skin they're in. The first step to self-acceptance is being radically honest about the things you're ashamed of. And by listening to these stories, you are tapping into the healing power of vulnerability, truth sharing, and the unshakable bravery to be yourself. You're giving yourself permission to recognize that you are completely beautiful and enough as you are. Hey, everyone. Hey, everyone. We hope you're doing well. And thank you for bearing with us as we took a a week-long short intermission in the middle of our What's Underneath Black Voices series. We're really excited to be back today with the second half of the series launching. If you haven't had a chance already, we highly encourage you go back and listen to the first four episodes and ideally also watch the videos on our YouTube channel and IGTV. But we're really excited to be back with the beginning of the next half of the season with the story of this week's guest, Richie Reseda, who is a feminist and a prison abolitionist and just an all-around incredible change maker in person. He is the founder of an, a really amazing nonprofit called Success Stories, which he founded from within prison. It's an alternative to incarceration, basically, where he creates safe spaces and communities where men can go through transformative feminist programs to help them reframe you know, masculinity and kind of step out of the confines of toxic masculinity culture that men are bred into that, in his opinion, create a culture where a lot of violence is a result of that. So his program is about helping wake people up to that and transform them, their sense of self. And Richie is one of the most inspiring people I have ever met because he, in the most harsh of circumstances, chose authenticity while he was in prison. He had the choice of, you know, in order to survive, of perpetuating the violence in prison, or he could have done what he ended up doing, which was taking the risk of defying that and being his true self, which was a self that wanted to live his dreams. And as someone who felt comfortable defying all the norms of masculinity, which included very much a style. His style is extremely subversive in terms of what is expected of a tough or strong man in our culture. He just steps to his own beat in every way. And in prison, that is a very scary place to be someone that does not conform to the masculine norms. And he took the risk of not conforming and chose to be authentic. And that inevitably got him to really understand who he was and what his purpose was, because he ended up having the people around him, their eyes opening up to his ways, and it it created him to become a leader and ultimately doing what what has become really, I feel, his life's purpose, which is to pull the roots out of where men become violent, why men become violent, and start to teach our society and culture that violence is not our source of strength, but actually being our full selves is our greatest source of strength. 
And if you guys are inspired by Richie's story, we highly encourage you to check out his organization, Success Stories, at successstoriesprogram.org and see how you can be involved by donating and other ways to support Richie's work. We'll put the information in the show notes below and links for how you can support and get involved in in Richie's mission to abolish prisons and, and abolish toxic masculine culture. Until next week, love to you all. Thanks so much for all of your support. Hope you enjoy this episode. Can you just start by talking about how you're feeling right now? I feel great right now. Why? I'm literally living. These past few days have been some of the best days I've ever lived in my life that I can remember. Um, We just had such huge wins. The statewide abolitionist movement in California and in Los Angeles literally won every campaign that we fought for, every single one, which is not something I've ever experienced. Um, And then winning the national, the presidential election to get Donald Trump out of office, which is what I'm really celebrating. Um, Not necessarily the victory of uh, President-elect Biden, but more so that we're one step closer to our long-term strategy. Um, But then also just on a personal level, um, my best friend sentence getting commuted and going from having 40 to life to immediately available to see the pro board. It's just a lot of of years of work have paid off in the past few days. Mm -hmm. And it's been amazing. Can you talk about what your style says about you? Um, I try to express myself as authentically as possible. and I just really try to use my style to expand uh, what masculinity can look like. I like feminine shit. I've always liked feminine shit since I was a child. Um, and I was afraid to dress like that. Sometimes. Sometimes I was a little more bold than others. But um, I don't know. I've always just tried to mix what is like traditionally like hip-hop masculine clothing with just things that feel... Uh, bright and happy and give me joy like flowers and prints and pink and green and hello kitty and things that just make me like i literally have like a physiological experience of happiness when i see them um yeah i try to decorate my body i I like juxtaposing things so i feel like what it says um what i'm trying to say what i hope my style says about me is that um i'm like of this generation and i'm of the place that I came from and I'm of hip hop and I'm of my culture, but I also like joy. Why were you afraid to not dress this way? I mean, I was, I was raised and, and very much bought into the toxic masculine culture of our country and like our world that um, boys aren't supposed to be happy <laughs> or have emotions at all. Um, and that we're supposed to be violent and have money and quote unquote have women and those are the things that make us real men and therefore worthwhile people um so there were moments where i was more bold and challenged that um and there's moments when i completely pledged my allegiance to that can you give an example of how you pledged your allegiance to that yeah i mean when i i started like when i was 12 from when i started middle school when i was 10 just because when my birthday is And from like the first day of middle school, when I was wearing like bright colors and clothes with like lizards on them, to like winter break, my whole style changed. By winter break, I was wearing like 
super big jeans and like big white t-shirts and I was only wearing like white and gray um, or like blue. Um, and yeah, I fully, not only did I dress like that, but started doing drugs, selling drugs, hanging out with gang members, became a gang member, like was in it. I remember when I was officially gonna get put on my hood, my homegirl was like, why? why are you doing this? Like, everybody already loves you for who you are. And I responded to her, I said, I want them to respect me as a man. She was like, everybody already respects you. I was like, no, but I want them to respect me as a man. And I felt like I had to gangbang and risk my life on a daily basis to be a quote-unquote real man. And what were some of the things you faced when you went to school with, like, the lizards on your clothes and that kind of thing? You know, kid stuff, people making fun of you people making fun of me and like, what is that? And like, what brand is that? And where did you get that? And da, 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 da. And like, just making it very clear that I was not following the rules of who and how I was supposed to be. I was in prison for seven years. And obviously I was told what I had to wear um, for seven years. And I remember when I first got to prison, I tried to like, figure out ways to still have my own style while in prison. I tried to like learn how to cut up old prison clothes and make like bow ties and like shit that I could wear with the uniform. Um, never really worked out. And plus you get in a lot of trouble for stuff like that. But anyway, when I got out, um, about a year and a half after I got out, I had the opportunity to go back to the prison that I was at the longest, the prison where I really grew up. Um, and I decided to wear all pink. I wore like all hot pink. I had this like Hello Kitty bright ass pink shirt with Hello Kitty's face on it. Um, and I had like hot pink pants, hot pink socks and hot pink shoes. And I just wanted to be able to go back into that prison and show the prison, um, like you don't get to tell me who to be anymore and show the people who are incarcerated there like that you get to be whoever you wanna be. Um, and in California prisons, everybody wears blue. All the incarcerated people wear blue and all the cops wear dark green. So you get used to only seeing blue and green and gray because everything is, everything is made out of cement and metal. So like even seeing colors that are not those colors, like visually like stick out to you so much. Like it, is, it, it can even be like overload to see a lot of it because you, you know, people be in prison for years and only see blue, green and gray for five years, seven years, 10 years, 20 years, 40 years. I tried to make bow ties out of old pants, but it didn't work. One, because I didn't do a great job. And two, because uh, my celly was like, don't do that. <laughs> he was in prison for, he literally went to prison like around the day I was born. So by the time I got to the cell with him, I was 21. He had been in prison for 21 years for something he didn't do. He's finally home now. The Innocence Project got him out. Um, but, Anyway, he was like, don't do that. He's like, you just gonna get in trouble and bring heat to the cell for no reason. And I just had to learn that this is what it's gonna be. I just have to dress like everyone else. Then I just started doing weird shit with my hair. Is that how you got into doing this hairstyle? No, I started doing this when I got out, but I just started like cutting designs into my hair. Eventually, eventually. For the first couple of years, I didn't do anything. I just completely just tried to find pants that weren't huge. Um, and besides that, blend in. Because there is also a scent in prison of like, don't wear skinny jeans. It's hard for me to communicate it, but I'll try. It's like, 
You can tell what era somebody went to prison in by how they dress in prison. Even though we have to wear the same things, you can see the slight differences. Like if somebody stuffs their shoes, you know they went to prison in like 2002. You remember like in the early 2000s where people used to wear chucks and put socks in them so they would like puff up? People will do that. Or like also an early 2000s thing was to like put rubber bands at the bottom of your jeans. People would do that. Or if someone went to prison in the 80s, they would um, iron creases into their clothes. Cause that was like an eighties thing to have like stiff pants, I guess I, I, that's what my dad would tell me. Um, and it was very much a thing in prison for people who would have like creases in their clothes or people who went to prison in the nineties would wear their clothes very big. Cause that's how they remembered the world to be. I went to prison in 2011 wearing some skinny jeans. So I was trying to get the most, the skinniest looking pants that I could find even in prison. So I would have my, my pants like tailored so that they fit a certain way. So it's like we're all wearing the same thing, but we really weren't. That's super fascinating. Like the way you can see the whole history of clothing through that filter. Mm-hmm. And, and so there, I'm, 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 I figured y'all might be into that. So I was excited to share it with you because I feel like most people would not get it or care. But um, the, 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 the other side of the coin was that there was a great deal of shame around it because um, prison is such a space where your value is determined on your masculinity. Um, and every generation kind of did its feminine thing. Like in the seventies, men wore really short shorts and that was seen as perfectly masculine. And in the nineties, that wasn't, or like in the seventies, men wore curlers in their hair. And in the nineties, they didn't. And in the nineties, Tupac had a nose ring and like, there's just different things that these different feminine things that, um, men have done over time that was considered masculine at the time. So anyway, the, pr the way that they would make fun of my generation is they would say, y'all wear skinny jeans, y'all wear girl jeans and stuff like that. So it also kind of felt like an act of um, resistance to me to try to find the tightest jeans I could in prison to like rep for my generation and also just push against that toxic masculine bullshit that my jeans had to be hella big. I've gotten used to people staring at me um, for so many reasons, um, I'm sure. But I don't know, I feel like the way I've always wanted to express my politics through how I dress. And that doesn't mean I have to wear a shirt with a political message on it. I'm actually really not into that. Um, I'm more so want the style of the clothing to say something about how I see the world. And I think by wearing bright colors and prints and things like that, I'm um, telling the world that patriarchy is bullshit. That's at least what I'm trying to say. I also have like a lot of tattoos and I have a tattoo on my face and like I don't go completely femme in that I'm wearing like dresses and skirts and like um so it is within some of the like confines of traditional masculinity um and I think that's important part of it too for me is to juxtapose those things like it's actually no like I don't it's not that um I identify outside of masculinity it's that I identify w with this masculinity can you talk about the assumptions that people make about you based on your appearance? I feel uncomfortable when people refer to me as a man. It's like weird, especially when you go to jail when you're a kid and then you get out and people are like, refer to you as a man and you're like, whoa, when did, I, I just feel like I never chose that word for myself. And it's not to say that therefore I'm a woman or therefore I'm non-binary. It's just that that word in particular feels weird to me. Like even, um, 
you know, when I've had like partners say like, oh, that's my man, da 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 da, like, look at my sexy man. I'm like, it feels kind of cringe to me. Like, who are you talking about? And I don't know. Like, that's, that's just a, a thing for me. Like, people assume that that would make me feel good and it doesn't. Do you think that has anything to do with like what you associate with the word man because of toxic masculinity? It just doesn't feel true to me. I'm not, I don't want to, I actually don't want to do the thing where I'm like, people recognize that men do a lot of harm and therefore let me distance myself from men. I actually want to bring myself closer to men because I enjoy all the privileges that men enjoy. I am, for all intents and purposes, a man. And that's fine that people make that assumption. I think it actually helps me do what I do, which is challenge patriarchy. Like it would be harder for me um, or just different. I just think I have a role to be able to reach a certain demographic of people who need to be reached. Um, but it just doesn't ring true to me. When I hear like a man, I think of my dad. It's like when people, like I go to like the DMV and they're like, Mr. Edmund, come to the thing. I'm like, who is that? Like, that's my dad. Like I feel a similar way when people refer to me like, as a man, though I understand why they do it and it's something that I accept again because I know the pr I have the privilege that comes with that and I feel like I have a responsibility to, to push against those systems of oppression using that privilege. When people refer to me as a black man, I, f I feel it less. I still feel it, but I feel it less. Why is that? I don't know. It just, I, mean, I think the black part just blends it a little bit because I really identify with being black. Are there any other assumptions that people make about you based on, based on your appearance? People make thousands of assumptions of me based on, on my appearance. You know, when I walk down the street, white people cross the street. And I think that also contributed to why I dress like I do and present the way I do, because I think that I was just tired of people being afraid of me. And I was like, let me show you how nice I am. Like, I learned to talk, I talk more like my mom. I talk in the higher register of my voice. When I say hi to people, I speak a certain way because I'm like trying to show them you don't have to be afraid of me. I, I think a lot about, um, the way that we use our mouths and throats to make sounds, just as like a producer. I don't know, I've always been aware of that. And I noticed that when I say hi to people, I'm, I'm mimicking my mom rather than my dad in my head. Even when I speak, I speak higher, like up in here, like in nasal and higher in my throat. So more feminine. Yeah, like I speak from a more, what could be perceived as a more femme part of my voice. And I think I started doing that when I was young to um, show people they don't have to be afraid of me because I learned when I was really, around the time I was like 10 years old, I like broke five feet and everybody was afraid of me all of a sudden. Do you remember what it felt like when people first started looking at you that way? I would just feel sad and like hurt when people would cross the street or not sit next to me or I would just be like, dang, I don't even, I ain't gonna hurt you. <laughs> and then I got to a point where I was like, yes, I will hurt you. And eventually I completely embraced society seeing me that way. And I hated society just as much as they hated me. When I was like 16, living on the streets, selling drugs to fucking survive and stealing food for each one of my meals, my like number one mantra was fuck everybody. I used to say that shit like 12 times a day. When somebody would like cross the street, I would say under my breath, fuck everybody. That's just how I felt. I'm gonna steal from everybody. I'm fucking whatever. Just fuck everyone. You wanna be like, fuck me? Well, fuck you. I think when you grow up in a body similar to mine in this country, you are taught that you are society's enemy. And at first, I felt really bad and I wanted to show society how nice I am. And eventually, I was like, okay, cool. You're my enemy too, then. Fuck you. And 
that was what gangbanging looked like for me from 16 to 22 or whenever I stopped. So can you talk a little bit more about that phase in your life and like when you were starting to get involved in gangs and like what happened after that and I guess just that whole journey? I mean, I started hanging out with gang members when I was 12. I started looking up to gang members when I was like 10 because they were winning. They were who society was telling me I was supposed to be and started really hanging out when I was like 12. And then when I was 16, I was like gangbanging, gangbanging. What did that look like? You know, we had our own little clique or whatever. And we were like going to parties and um, one of the bigger gangs in a part of LA that I was from noticed what noticed us. We were selling drugs, we were selling clothes. We were like noticeable. And we started hanging out with them. And you know, they had bigger problems. You hang out with them, people shoot at you. So eventually you start shooting back. And yeah, that's what I mean when I mean like, that's when it became like, like life or death shit on the daily for some years. Um, and then I went to jail where gangs are like the whole way that, you know, prison culture is organized. Um, How did you end up in jail? I robbed three pharmacies when I was 19. Um, actually, to back up a little bit, when I was 18, I went to jail for something I didn't do. I was like literally just like driving down the street, pulled over, told that I matched the description for a robbery. I went to jail for like six days, I think. And then the DA rejected the case. But after being in jail, I was like, oh shit, I never want to go there again. So I'm gonna like stop selling drugs and get a real job. And first I worked at the movie theater. Then I started working at, um, for the county of LA as a teacher's assistant for preschoolers. <laughs> and um, the county cut its budget. They cut the early education stuff out the budget. Well, they were getting the budget from the state and the state cut its early education budget. Um, so I showed up to work one day and my, my classroom was closed and I didn't have a job. And the way I felt was, you know, I had just finally paid off all my tickets, got a car, got my first apartment, um, and I didn't want to be sleeping in cars again. So I felt in my, you know, immaturity and my self-righteousness, I tried this y'all's way and it didn't work, so now I'm gonna do it my way. And I hit up the homie who really was like a, a drug dude, not like a robber type dude. And cause that's what I always did. I didn't rob people, I always sold drugs. That's the way I supported myself from when I was 13 until then. And um, I figured he, <clears throat> I let him know what happened, that I had to pay my rent, that I just lost my job. I figured he would give me some drugs to sell or something. And he was like, yo, it's some, uh, the homies just hit a pharmacy for like $40,000. I said, let's go right now. And he was like, what do you mean? We don't have a plan. I was like, fuck a plan. You put on some masks, you go into the store. You don't need guns, they'll listen to you. Put on some masks, go into the store, tell them to give you the money and you leave. Obviously, it's not only was it an extremely harmful thing to do, but it was, that is just not a good plan. So yeah, we, we did not get $40,000, we got $1,500. And after splitting it up, I still couldn't pay my rent. And we did it a couple more times. On the very last time, um, we weren't sure, so I just walked into the store and 
saw that they were closing and they had all the money on the counter and I walked out and I told the homies it's a bunch of money in there and they went in and they got it and we left and there was like a helicopter following us but didn't have its lights on and they were getting all scared and you know I was hella arrogant or whatever so I was like well give me the money and I'll just walk home since y'all scared and I got out the car and I was walking and this Mustang pulled up on me it was a 2012 Mustang black and these two dudes jumped out in plain clothes with bulletproof vests and big ass guns. And they told me to put my hands on my head. And I thought they were security guards or something. I thought I was gonna be able to talk my way out of it. And I put my hands up and one of them, they ran up and they hit me with a gun and I just knocked out. They hit you? Yeah, they hit me in the head with the gun in the back of my head and it like knocked me out. Um, you know, and they just beat the shit out of me. And it was a black cop and a white cop. And the white cop was like, I should have shot your black ass. and had the fucking shotgun all in the back of my head and they arrested me and um, I like had a concussion. I was like throwing up and shit, it was gross. And uh, they tried to give me 150 years to life. And um, my community, the organizing community that I grew up with uh, raised $10,000 so I can get a private attorney and I fought the case for a year in the LA County Jail. And I ended up getting 10 years and two strikes and going to prison. So like what was happening around that time with your family, your parents? Like how did you end up on the street? Yeah, I'll back up a little bit. Um, I started getting in trouble with the law when I was 11. The first time I was arrested was for uh, playing too rough on the schoolyard. And then again, when I was 13 for leaving school early. Arrested for leaving school early? Mm -hmm. By the Los Angeles School Police Department, mm -hmm. which is a separate independent police department. Mm -hmm. um, actually, even though it only exists in Los Angeles schools, it's still one of the biggest police departments in the world. Armed police officers will arrest you for being late to class. Or... So my dad, being uh, also being black and being from the projects um, and never have been arrested in his life, um, he just, he saw it as I was just the problem. So me and my dad had a, a rough relationship when I was young. But anyway, I was failing out of school when I was 14 and in comes these two young organizers, um, Mark Anthony Johnson and Patrice Colors, And they started organizing us to be youth organizers. And that really changed my life. And I went from failing out of school to not only like thriving in the organizing community of LA, but like getting all A's, taking college classes. I was the editor in chief of the school newspaper. Um, and when I was 16, I was ready to graduate. I could graduate early because I was taking all these extra classes. And I asked the principal if I can graduate the 12th graders. And he said, if you don't want to go to school here, you should just drop out. Regardless of the fact that I was getting good grades and da 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 da, the principal saw me as a troublemaker because I was always in trouble with the cops. And because I was a student organizer, I mean, we were having like press release, uh, like press conferences on campus and shit like that. So he told me, if you don't want to go to school here, you should drop out. And that's what I did. And my dad kicked me out of the house when I was 16. And that's how I ended up in the streets. So from my dad's perspective, he couldn't, there was no difference between the gang shit, the cop getting in trouble with the cops and organizing. He saw all as one as like, you are just a troublemaker and you just need to go to school and play sports and do the quote unquote right thing. That's how I ended up on the streets. I got kicked out when I was 16. And you know, the people who I, who had a spot for me were my homies. So 
it, that's when it went like full-fledged gang shit and even the organizing and all that kind of fell to the wayside so were you like close with the organizers like like patrice and everyone and did they like know that you were getting involved with gangs and and did they did they try to stop you yeah my organizing community was stayed trying to save my life when i was doing bullshit in the streets when i was on juvenile probation it was patrice and mark anthony who was taking me to my probation meetings and my community service every weekend and telling me I should stop stealing and if I need food that they'll give me food and like they fought for me in every sense of the word. Um, it was the organizing community that raised the money so I can get a private attorney so I got 10 years instead of 150. But when I was 19 I robbed the stores. They tried to take my life away. The organizing community raised the money. I got 10 years and two strikes and I went to prison. Do you remember like the feelings that you felt like when you first got arrested and and when you first were going to prison? Like, yeah, what were you feeling at that time? Yeah, when I got arrested, it was the most scared I've ever been in my life. I mean, I had been arrested so many times at that point. I was very familiar with the back of police cars. Um, but I knew this was different though. Because you knew what you had done was, was worse. I knew that I got caught robbing stores and that I'd probably be in jail for a little while. And that was hard to just adjust my mind to like, I am now entering a new reality. I was just so freaking scared. I was scared of not being able to be the person who I wanted to be. Which is? Not the character that I was playing. I always wanted to be, I always wanted to make art. That's what I always wanted to do. I started producing music when I was 14. Um, I started like playing music learning instruments when I was like six or five. Um, and when I started organizing, I was like, oh, I want to make music and clothes and films for the movement. That's what I want to do. And when I was in the streets, it was never a long-term plan. Like I understood that it wouldn't work in the long run. I just thought I'll make enough money in the streets to start my company. And once I was fighting that case, I was like, oh, I might've missed my chance to live my destiny. Um, and that's what hurt the most. And also just the idea that I would have to be on 24 seven, like that I'd have to be in character in like tough guy character 24 seven um, was scary to me. Which is what you thought is the only way you could survive, basically. I assume that was the only way I could survive in prison. And was that a reality? No. So what was the reality? Well, after a few years actually being in prison, I learned that I can be whoever I want to be, even in prison. Um, it comes with different risks, but eventually I decided that those risks were worth being the real me. It took a couple years though. So let's hear the details of that. Um, so I had 10 years and two strikes, which meant that if I were to be involved in any violence, then I'd get a third strike and I'd get life in prison. And I was also, by the time I got to prison, I was 20 years old. What could get you a strike? At that time, anything. Even misdemeanors could get you a strike. Before the passing of Prop 36, you could get struck out for anything. I saw somebody get struck out for having a pen cap with some weed in it, life in prison. So that was very scary to be entering prison, a place I've never been, but that I assumed was pretty violent. Um, 20 years old with 10 years to do and two strikes. Um, I, I figured I'm gonna have to be involved with something at some point, and I'm gonna get struck out and lose my life. Or if I choose not to be involved, 
then I will get attacked for not being involved and I can still lose my life in a different, like be killed. So it was like a life or death situation. So the idea that I wouldn't play the role um, felt to me like I'd be choosing death. So if you weren't tough, you'd, you felt like you'd get hurt. I remember my fuck everybody mantra was turned up to the max when I first got to prison. Cause I was like, the people in prison are so like in their patriarchy zombie mode that they want me to get into fights and shit which can get me a third strike and have me lose my life. The system itself wants me to get in fights and shit so I can lose my life. Like nobody here is on my side. I'm completely alone. So did you feel completely alone even on the outside or was there anyone there for you? No, there's hella people there for me. I wouldn't be here and wouldn't be who I am if it wasn't for the people who were there for me. I was so supported, which is not the story for most people in prison. I had an amazing romantic partner at the time. I had amazing mentors in Patrice and Mark Anthony. Um, I had my best friends. Like my, the, my community wrapped me up in love while I was in prison. So do you feel that that contributed a lot to your ultimate decision to be yourself while you were there? 100%. I don't think, it, I, don't think I would have made a choice to be my authentic self if I didn't have so many people who showed me that that was okay and that that was good enough. And that's what people don't understand. People see incarcerated people with tat gang tattoos all over their face and like doing wild ass shit, stabbing people. And they're like, these people are monsters. But it's like, no, they're just, they are just fighting for the only love they get. And the only love they get is the pat on the back for stabbing a quote unquote enemy. But if you give them love for something else, they will go for that too. And I was blessed enough to get love for being authentic rather than being violent. Um, enough to even make the very scary and potentially dangerous choice of choosing myself over patriarchal prison culture. I mean, I started reading bell hooks very early. I started reading bell hooks before I went to prison. I was reading bell hooks in feminist men's groups that Mark Anthony was taking me to. And I remember how free I felt in feminist men's group as like a 14, 15 year old kid. And I wanted to feel free like that again. And I started reading it in prison. Um, and slowly but surely, like having conversations with other men, like... I remember the first time I said something to someone about misog their misogyny, I was so fucking scared. I was physically shaking. Um, I was in the cell with my celly at the time, and he was like telling a story. And every time he referred to a woman in the story, he referred to her as a B word. And like, I'm on the top bunk and he's on the bottom bunk, so he can't see me. And I'm literally reading this book and I like put it on my chest. And I just asked him like, do you only refer to women as the B word? And I was so shook. And it's actually, unfortunately, a very common thing to like only refer to women as the B word. Um, and, you know, I'm from the Valley in L.A. and he's from South Central. And I feel like you don't have to be from L.A. to understand the difference in those places. And he was just like, man, shut your old Valley square ass up. Like trying to tell me how to talk. Like, what the fuck? And, and that was it, though. He didn't punch me in the face. He didn't run down the tear and tell everybody like... Richie is a softie and we should fucking kill him. Like nothing happened, you know? He just kind of made fun of me and that was it. And I was like, oh, okay. And I just slowly pushed myself to do more and more. And then eventually started Success Stories where we did that work as like an organization, as a program inside where we do toxic masculinity workshops with incarcerated young men. We had recruited all young men just by walking up to like circles of young gang members and being like, y'all should come to this group and let's talk about what you think success means because we understood that that framing worked for people and that a lot of how we thought about success was based in patriarchy. So it was more about like reframing how you think about success 
as opposed to like, come to this toxic masculinity workshop. And then a couple months into running success stories and feeling more like authentic and like in my bag, even within prison, um, I remember there was another homie of ours, me, it was me, Charles, and this other dude who were really close. He was also 21. He also had three strikes. He had seven years in prison. And um, me and Charles were sitting in class. We were in this computer class together. And we heard some uh, racial epithets being thrown back and forth in the room next door, which is like a big deal in prison because California general population prisons are segregated by race. And the races like fight each other. Not like legally, but kind of. Kind of. It's um, the prison system itself and the people in prison are kind of like in cahoots in a way around the racial segregation. The prison system likes it because it keeps violence going and it keeps their whole racket going. So like they literally designed the buildings. So like the way that it's split is like black folks um, and Asian folks are on one side and Latinx folks and white folks are on the other side. Generally, generally, generally speaking, without having to go into all the fucking prison minutia. And literally the buildings are, are designed in such a way so that there's like two TVs, two phones, two like sides of the building. So they're, they're in on it. <laughs> because every time we come together and we put that shit aside, they fuel it to, to start it back up. Right, because then they lose power if everyone comes together. Exactly. They've done shit. Woo, I was at Solid Susanville, and I remember um, there was a time when only the blacks were out in the day room, and all, everybody else was locked up in their cells, and the cops stole something off of one of the, the Latinx cat's doors, knowing that when everyone came out, they would assume that we did it, because we were the only people who were out. And they let it get, they, 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 you could watch the room and like the politicking going back and forth and people like, like it's about to be a riot. Like people are getting knives, people like, everybody's about to fight each other to the death. And the cops let it go all the way to the point where it was like two groups of us and it was about to be a fucking riot to where they came out and said, hey, y'all looking for this? And laughed and like threw it to the dude that they stole it from. So that, that's just to, to, to give you a sense of the way yeah. that the cops are in on it. Um, Oh, I was so fucking scared. Anyway, we started hearing some racial stuff going back and forth. So me and Charles, our ears perk up because we're like, oh shit, it's about to be a race riot. Um, and it turns out that our other homie uh, and some of our homies were about to jump this teacher. That apparently this teacher had said something anti-black and they were going to jump him. Um, the cops broke it up. It didn't happen. So I'm talking to my homie and I'm like, bro, you got two strikes. You realize if you jump a teacher, it's a duck. You're going to get life. And he was like, so? Like... I'll fucking die for this shit. I don't give a fuck. And I was like, er, not me. Like, I would not do that. He was like, so you're saying you wouldn't help me? I was like, absolutely not. I was like, you choose to jump a teacher and throw your life away? Can't help you, bro. That's dumb. And he went and like told all my homies about it. So now my homies were like politicking on me. Like now, like they're about to jump me because I said that I wouldn't participate in this, right? So at this point in the gangbang world, what I'm supposed to do is beat him up for even speaking on my name and then fight each one of them for even trying to talk behind my back or anything. That's how that, those rules are supposed to go. But in the world of what I actually care about, I actually feel bad for them. Cause I'm like, you all are concerning yourselves with the fact that I wouldn't throw my life away for no reason. And that's actually just sad to me. <laughs> Cause we have a much bigger problem here. We're, we're all a bunch of black people in prison. And I just chose, like, I'm just not going to play this game no more. So if y'all going to jump me and I'm going to get life in prison for fighting 
for what I actually believe in. I'd rather get life in prison for fighting for what I believe in than get life in prison for jumping some teacher because I'm afraid of what y'all think of me. And uh, that's what I told them. And in the change of events that only God can write, they all respected it. My friend, he was my neighbor. He lived a couple cells down from me. He said, you gotta be, what are you willing to go to the dirt for? You gonna go to the dirt for patriarchal culture or you gonna go to the dirt for what you believe in? Hi everyone, we hope you're enjoying this episode so far. We wanted to take a quick moment to remind you that if you're moved by what you're hearing, you can watch the video version of this interview by subscribing to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash you. That's youtube.com slash S-T-Y-L-E-L-I-K-E-U. Now back to the episode. So, so what was like your journey with, I guess, like accepting your reality? Like, I guess the fact that you were, the fact that you were in prison, like were there different phases? Was there a phase where you were maybe resisting and in denial that that was your reality? And then did you eventually get to a place where you felt at peace and had accepted that this was your reality? It was hard. I was so depressed. I remember when I first got locked up, because here's the thing, what I actually did um, legally, like if I just got prison time for what I did, I would have done between two and six years in prison, not fighting 150 years to life. So the first few months I was in prison, I'm like, oh, I'm going to go home any day now. And then I remember the first time I went to court and they offered us a deal. My first deal was nine years. And that's when I realized like, oh, I'm, this is my new reality now for some time. I was 19, so to think like nine years ago, I was 10. Like, like I couldn't fathom tw- 28, being 28 years old at 19, you know? Um, so I just remember I, when I came back from court that day, I just went, I got in my bed. It was like 150 person dorm in this tiny space. I got in my, it was a triple layer bed. I was on the bottom one closest to the floor. I got in it and just put my blanket over my face and just cried. Like, this is where I'm going to be. Um, and from that point, probably for the next couple years, it was very hard to adjust to, pri- to prison being my world. Mm-hmm. I went through, like, first, you know, the denial, then the anger, then the pleading, then, you know, all the stages of, like, grief. Um, and around the time started success stories. It's like, once I found how I could still be fulfilled, even in prison... That was a game changer for me. Around the time of starting success stories, building the relationships with Charles and 88 and like real loving relationships inside and loving relationships outside and doing work that I loved, like the work with success stories and making music again. I got a keyboard in my cell when I was at Soledad. Mm-hmm. I was like, prison became my world. And to not be in prison was like akin to not being on earth. It was like, how can you... Obviously, I wanted to go home because I'd been home before, but it seemed like thinking about being home was like thinking about being on the moon. So once you sort of like found and started to discover your purpose, like within prison, you started to kind of, I guess, accept. Yeah. I mean, post starting success stories, um, it took a long time to figure out how to do that work in a, a way that worked. It took a few years before I would say success stories was any good at actually transforming folks' relationship to patriarchy and relationships to themselves. Um, We had to learn that 
our, it was not our job to teach people about patriarchy. It was our job to be vulnerable about our own. And then that invites other people to be vulnerable about their own. And we can grow from there. Um, after doing success stories for a while, we're like, yo, this system is still patriarchal as well. <laughs> and wrong and exploitative. And, um, and I told my partner at the time, and her background was in state policy. And she said, you should write a bill about it. And me and Charles were like, okay, we've never written a bill before. At this point, we're 22 year old kids in prison. Um, we went to the law library, we did the research, we sent it to her, she put it in like the bill format and she got it introduced. It was uh, AB 512 in 2015. And it made it so that you can earn time off your sentence by going to rehabilitative programs like success stories. And the governor's office hit up our author, the assembly person who introduced it and said, I can do this stronger with the ballot initiative. And you know, we thought it was cap and, but he actually did. And he added that language into uh, what ultimately became Prop 57. And we started organizing people in prison, people who used to be in prison, people with family members in prison in the visiting room. We were getting signatures for it in the visiting room and catching flack from the cops, them saying we can't do that and us having to like print out court cases and showing that constitutionally we can and um, sending out voter guides about Prop 57 to, we sent out one to every the family of every single person on that yard, over 2,000 people. Um, and you know, we were just part of the huge California movement to pass Prop 57 and it passed. When was that? That was in 2016. And because that law passed, uh, I was able to earn two years off my sentence because of the programs that I went through. Interestingly enough, my dad passed away on March 23rd, 2020. So, um, if we didn't change that yes. law, I wouldn't have had that year and a half with my dad. So how, how do you feel you tended to your mental health or did you tend to your mental health while you were in prison? And, and, and do you feel kind of like the ramifications of your mental health during that period now? Hell yeah, my mental health was shot out when I was in prison. I already had anxiety before I went to prison, but I was like severely depressed, at times suicidal. The hardest thing about prison for me was the constant being treated as less than a human being and what that does to the way that I understood myself. So it's not just the big horror stories. Like there was one time when we were transferring and what they're supposed to do if you have to sleep overnight at a prison while you're driving to another prison is they give you a cell. But they just left us in the holding tank. So there's like 20 of us in like a bathroom, essentially. And the floor was wet. It was like a gross public bathroom. And they were like, this is where y'all gonna be for the night. And this is where you can sleep. And one of the older dudes we were with was like, can y'all give us some sheets? And there is a, a incarcerated person worker rolling a dirty laundry bin full of dirty sheets. like. Bye. And the cop was like, give them some of those sheets. And we had like nasty, like orange stain, like throw up sheets. Like, and I was like, all right, y'all, good night. Like there's those moments, but those moments were almost laughable. Like it was just so gross and inhumane that it was like, you feel like you're in a movie. Like I, I remember one time um, I was in this one prison in Susanville, which is this, it's like the northeastern tip of California. It snows like eight months out of the year. It's so gross. It's like Trump Town, USA. And I remember just being locked up in my boxers and just being called the N-word for like three hours by a bunch of white cops and just being like, me and my celly were literally laughing. We were like, I, I, we felt like we were in a fucking like Martin Luther King movie. 
Um, but, but those aren't the moments that like hurt the most. The moments that hurt the most that fucked up my mental health were like the small things of like, um, one time I had to, I had a midterm and I had to get my college books from under, under my door. And in order to get to the building, you know, I don't have fucking keys. And there's a cop right there, like on the other side of the door. And I knocked on the door and he like looked at me and just continued his conversation for 20 minutes. I just stood there. And it's just like, if, if someone came and knocked on the door right now, we would open the fucking door. You know what I'm saying? It's just like basic human being shit. Like you open the, if I can let you in and you can't get in, I open the door. But it was just the way that it didn't even occur to him to open the door. It took me years of therapy since getting out and coaching and love from my community to see myself as a worthwhile person. Um, that, was, that has been the hardest hit to my mental health for sure. I remember I was driving down Sunset one time and had a full-on flashback where I had to like stop the car in the middle of Sunset because I was in prison for a second. Like there was some loud sound and I like looked and there was like a prison gun tower like on Sunset Boulevard. Not like, like it was there, you know what I'm saying? Like I could see it and like just had to stop because I was like, this isn't real. Like seeing blue, blue and red like flashing and like literally had to stop and just be like, this is not real and I just am not gonna drive and hopefully nobody hits me because I can't see the real world right now. Like there's those moments, but it's the, um, it's just that you're not worthwhile shit that is really, really hard to shake. Can you provide some examples of like where in your life you've exercised that and like, you know, started to try to work on getting what you deserve? Yeah, I've learned in relationships to ask for what I want. And that it's okay. <laughs> and it's even okay if the other person says no. It doesn't mean I don't deserve it. It just means it's not going to come from them. Um, I've learned professionally that I can ask to be paid. Um, I've learned that like, I can actually decide my own calendar. Like For a long time, I was used to my calendar being decided by someone else. So someone was like, can we get it on a call? I would just say yes, because this is what the universe has presented me with, and therefore it must be. I, did, I say no to things all the time now. Like, most of the time, I say no to things. People ask if we can get a call and, like, send it to me in an email. <laughs> or maybe this person's better to talk to or whatever. Like, I just fight for my time and my value and, like, my desires in a way that I never would have a year ago or two years ago when I was in prison. I still feel the fear, though, when I'm going to ask for the thing that I want most of the time. Um, and I've learned that that's just part of it and that that's okay. You have to take that risk. Yeah, you got to go through it. Can you talk about um, the day that you got out of prison and, or, or I guess a little bit about the journey of getting out? Yeah, so I fought fire for my last year in prison. I got my bachelor's degree in business in my last year. Um, and I came home on July 16th, 2018. And um, How'd that feel? Best day of my life for sure. It was wild. I couldn't believe it. And again, I had the privilege of being able to fight fire before I got out. So I've been outside of the gates, you know, during my last year. I was like, I remember leaving prison grounds and being like, holy shit, like, I'm outside. Like, I remember the first time um, I responded to a vehicle accident. It was like 3 a.m., the alarm went off. I ran, put my gear on, like, got in the engine, rode backwards at 80 miles an hour after not being in a car for fucking however long. And then pulled up on scene. I'm like in the middle of a freeway. There's red and blue lights everywhere because the cops have blocked traffic and because there's uh, fire engines there and ambulances there. 
And I'm like having to assess all these patients who just got in this car accident and, you know, do these quick assessments to see if they're okay or to what extent they're not. And just being like, so overwhelmed, like, holy shit, I'm not in prison right now. The fucking CHP is like talking to me. They don't know that I'm in prison, like that I'm incarcerated. They just see a firefighter. Like there's nothing about my uniform. So they're just talking to me regular, like, and you know, when you're a firefighter, people treat you like you're a fucking hero, you know? People pull over and they're like, thank you. Like it's the exact opposite of how you're treated in prison. It was just the most overwhelming experience of my whole life. Anyway, when I got out, it still didn't feel like when I would be fighting fire and being out. Cause I was like, no, I am out. Like I can do whatever I want. I'm not just here to like put out a fire and go back to prison. Was it, was it weird at first to have that kind of freedom? Yeah, it was weird. Oh, I was so scared. I was, when we first got in the car and we were driving home, um, I remember uh, my partner at the time, she was like, you wanna stop by the store and like get something to eat? And I was like, no, no, don't stop. Like, I was just so afraid. I was afraid they would come back and get me. I was afraid to be in that county, but I was just afraid to be outside. I was just afraid to be in the store. And when I, we finally did like stop and go in a store and I went in, they give you your like gate money. They give you $200 when you leave prison. Like that's gonna do something for you. And they give it to you on this card. So I went to an ATM to like pull all the money off the card. And I remember walking in and just walking like so aware of everybody and thinking that everybody knew that I was just in prison somehow. And like getting my little money out the ATM and then using the money to like buy some spicy mangoes and the guy being like, have a nice day and me being like, you have a nice day. Cause I too am having a nice day and we're just two regular people having nice days. <laughs> like it was just so weird. And um, anyway, it was wild. I saw my family. Um, I saw like my whole organizing community, like my chosen family. It was fucking beautiful, it was lit. Just a lot of hugging and a lot of crying and just being afraid to be outside mm -hmm. like you couldn't trust that it was real yeah like it was just or just there was just something scary about the outside world that i can't to, i still can't explain why but i remember the next day i went to like go jogging and i'm like jogging and i was staying on the small streets and i was staying off western at the time and i like to come back like i could either jog back the way i came but to do a circle i'd have to go on western and i remember stopping like when i saw western boulevard and just like being like, I can't go out there. It was just a major street and I just started crying. I was just, I just, I don't know what I was afraid of. It was just, I just felt like if I was out there, everybody would know that I didn't belong here and that I actually belonged in prison. Building trust with myself has been the hardest thing for me to do internally since getting out of prison. After years of just being told that you're the worst, you know, and not just in prison, but like before that, being told that you're the worst, that you were evil. Like I got, I got kicked out of fucking magnet when I was eight. I got kicked out of school when I was eight years old. Like, just being treated like the enemy from the time you were a child, you believe that you are the enemy, you know? And that has been really hard. How did you deal with your anger? My anger? I don't be angry like that. I really do not be angry like that. Sometimes I cry. I don't know. It's not that I don't be angry like that. I don't get overwhelmed by anger. Anger is my reality. I've been angry my whole life. It's just how I exist. I'm angry and happy at the same time. I'm never not angry, you know? It, it's not an overwhelming feeling to me anymore. It's just like, get, get, if, if in the moments where it hits me really hard, I'm like, okay, this is the reality we live in. What are we gonna do to change it? It's like deep breath and keep it pushing. I've lived through enough unfathomable injustice 
that it doesn't surprise me anymore. It's honestly kind of fucked up. Like, I'll tell stories and people will be like, what? Oh my God. But it's like, this is one of 100,000 stories. I'm just so used to it. I remember when Charles first got denied parole. Again, Charles got in a fist fight, 16, got seven to life. He goes to the parole board at 23 and they told him no. They said, come back in three years. I just remember falling to the ground and crying and just being, I couldn't fathom that level of injustice. Now I can, I've seen it enough times. And that's why we fight. When was the last time you cried? Yesterday. Maybe the day before that. Why? Because my best friend got a sentence commuted. I don't know if it was only a happy cry though. When he called me the day before yesterday and um, told me that he got commuted, he was crying. I was kind of crying. But when we got off the phone, I started really crying. And it was half the happiness of finally what we've all been fighting for for so many years. Him more than anybody who's been in prison 17 years. And it was also just the, a release cry mm -hmm. of every day 24 seven, mm -hmm. knowing that all the people I love are still being treated the ways that I've described today. And that we had to do all of that just to get the most basic fucking thing for this kid. And just the tiredness of it, of having stacks of fucking prison mail and people calling all the time. And it's not that it's like you're bothering me and that's the, what I'm releasing from. It's like the fact that this is our reality. Like this is how our communities are done. And the amount of fighting we have to put in for basic level shit, for just basic human being shit. What's your biggest hope? Uh, my biggest hope in life is that we can make it so that like vengeful, violent, patriarchal culture is no longer like the accepted norm. Um, I don't think that we can do away with it altogether while I'm alive, maybe. But just that it's not like the accepted norm. Like the idea that I robbed these stores, which is terrible, and that the response was they're gonna beat the shit out of me and try to hold me against my will at gunpoint away from my family for 150 years. Like, what does that have to do with that? Like, that, that, that and, the, and the way that people, like that is assumed and that is normal and people are like, yeah, that is what we wanna change. The idea that most people, unless you're like a cis man, you can't even walk down the fucking street. Like, that shit, that, and that that's normal and expected. Um, that is my biggest, I don't think of it like a hope because we fight for that shit every day. It's not, it's not just like, I hope this happens. Like, this is what we fighting for. Um, but yeah, if we can get, if, if we can just make revenge and patriarchy, not the norm, um, that would be amazing. That's what I fight for every day. I mean, we harmed and traumatized so many people, not physically harmed, but, um, like, mentally, emotionally, like traumatized so many people in those robberies. But I do often think about the security guard who I myself made lay on his stomach at gunpoint while my friend took the registers and just how he like begged me not to hurt him. And hmm. Yeah, that's another big part of the reason why I do the work that I do because I'm just trying to help build a world where shit like that doesn't happen. Where that doesn't have to be your strategy. It was my fault in that I made a bad choice. 
and I'm responsible for my choices. Um, it wasn't my fault that that was like the norm that was encouraged. It's not like I made up patriarchy or I made up cripping. Or getting kicked out of school at eight years old. Yeah, like, like that was the dominant culture. That is how our culture teaches men to be. So that is the part that we're fighting to change because some people are like, well, you just shouldn't have done it. It doesn't matter if that's the norm. And it's like, why are you asking people to be extraordinary instead of just making the culture less gross? Like, it's fine that our culture is super racist and terrible and you just shouldn't be like that. That you should be the one person that should rise above this heinousness. Why are you asking niggas to, to swim upstream? Like, we need to change the direction of the water. Like, and also the only people who ask us to swim upstream are the people who benefit from the direction of the stream. Yeah, I, I think of him all the time. And I think that a big part of accountability is trying to build a world where the harm that we create doesn't happen anymore. Obviously, I'm not going to rob anybody ever again, but somebody is. And um, I feel responsible in that. I, I don't want to, not only do I not want to contribute to the culture that makes that a thing, but I want to contribute to the culture that makes it not a thing. Okay, so last question. Why in your body, why in your journey, why in your skin, is it a good place to be? Oh, I am so grateful to be born me. I'm so grateful to be born me. When I was in jail, I remember thinking, Damn, why couldn't I have been born someone else? Because I felt trapped. But eventually, for like the first couple of years, I felt like that. But then eventually I realized, no, I'm grateful to have been born me. Um, my first couple of years in jail, I used to be like, why wasn't I born a bird? Like their lives are so simple and they can fly in and out of the jail whenever they want. And why wasn't I born a, born a squirrel? Like their lives are so simple and they can crawl under the gate and leave. But after I had found my authenticity and like my bag, I was like, I am grateful that God put my soul in my body and I get to have this experience. Yeah, I'm grateful to be me. I, I really wouldn't want to be anyone else. We hope you were inspired by this episode. Until next week, that's it from me, Elisa. And me, Lily. If you were touched by this story, please take a moment to share the episode with any friends or family who could benefit from understanding that they are enough as they are. And if you agree that facades separate us and being radically honest brings us together, please help spread the movement for radical self-acceptance by subscribing to, rating, and reviewing this podcast. Each month, we'll send a free copy of our book, True Style is What's Underneath, The Self-Acceptance Revolution, to one of our podcast reviewers. We can't skip ahead to a happy ending or live inside a photoshopped image or an Instagram filter. There is no finding oneself when glossing over the truth.